You'll find another insert in your bulletin this morning. And uh, on one side, it has the, the architectural drawing you've seen before, where the, the different stones and uh, building elements of the building are, are called out. And on the other, it's more of a perspective sketch. Well, it is a perspective sketch. And uh, I want you to notice that uh, this particular one is the building under construction. It's not completed. Now, it's not exactly how we build a building as we go along, but I want you to notice that uh, the supports are already in place. The columns, the beams, uh, the roof joists, all those kind of things are already in place uh, because they have to be in place before the rest of the building can be completed. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Those supports that hold the rest of the building up. In the house that Jesus builds, what are the supports? What are the living stones that we'd consider that the support the rest of the building so the building doesn't collapse, it doesn't fail? Boy, there's nothing worse than a building collapse. Maybe you saw in the news uh, this week that building in New Orleans, the Hard Rock Hotel, uh, already 11 stories high, under construction, and uh, people were killed and people were injured, and it just collapsed while it's still under construction. You know, uh, but in the building that Jesus builds, as the divine architect, he determines what the supports of the building are going to be. And we find the supports for the building that he builds, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 11. So we'll be looking again at the 11th verse of the 4th chapter of Ephesians. And here Paul describes the spiritual gifts that we consider the support gifts that hold up and support the rest of the gifts and, and ministries in the church. All the rest of the living stones, if we continue with, with our analogy. But if we change the analogy to a human body, the most uh, frequent analogy of the church of Jesus Christ is that of the body, the body of Christ. If we change it to that analogy, the body of Christ, a living body, needs life. In order to be healthy, and thrive and grow and mature, there must be the proper working of each individual part. Most of us here know, and we haven't had prayer requests about this this morning, when one part of the body doesn't work, it throws you off. <laughs> you know, nothing, it seems like nothing else works. You know, it's kind of like the old joke, you, you know you're getting old when everything hurts. And if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. <laughs> and so, you know, because just one thing can, can throw us off. There must be a proper working of each individual part that is being fitted together for the building up of itself in love. And so in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul lists here four life-giving and life-sustaining gifts. Here there's a spiritual gift involved, but these are also, they're gifted men, but God is also giving these gifted men to the church. They are a gift from God. And it says in verse 11, And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, if you're thinking and listening closely, Pastor, you said four gifts. It sounds like there's five there to me. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But in the grammatical construction, if your Bible has the, the same translation type here where it says some, it says some as evangelists, or some as apostles, that's one gift, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and then it has some pastors, teachers. 
So in the grammatical construction, pastor hyphen teacher is one gift or one gifted, gifted man. Every pastor is to be a gifted teacher. But not every teacher, of course, is a pastor. Now, the support ministry of the apostles and the prophets, remember, is foundational. They laid the proper foundation of Jesus Christ, on which the rest of the building is built. And the other two gifts, evangelist and pastor-teacher, are given for why? Why are they given? For what purpose? Why are they life-given and life-sustaining? He tells us in verse 12, they are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, before we talk about the evangelists and pastor teachers and what their spiritual giftedness is specifically, we need to look more closely at their purpose. Why? Why did God give evangelists and pastor teachers to the church? And Paul says that God gifted them and gave them to the church. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, there's two important things there that we need to understand. First of all, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a saint. Turn to the person next to you. We'll do kind of talk back stuff and say, I am a saint. <laughs> now say, you are a saint. <laughs> Now, a saint is not someone who lives a pretty good life and helps others and acts saintly or piously. Or It's definitely not somebody who has a halo around their head. Mine would be pretty tilted. Nor is a saint someone who has been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. In the Greek, the word translated saint, hagios, means holy. Holy. It means to be set apart. To be holy means to be separate, to be set apart, to be sanctified, holified. We use the word sanctified instead of holified, but both of them would work in the sense that one is set apart unto God. As saints, we are set apart unto God for a purpose, for a particular purpose. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be holy. In the Old Testament, everything that was employed in the service of God necessarily had to be consecrated. In the tabernacle and in the temple service, every vessel, every article of furniture, even the smallest spoon, the tongs and the, the snuffers, together with the building itself and all the priests and all their garments were consecrated wholly unto God. And each and every one was to be used for no other purpose than divine service. The setting apart for holy service was the Old Testament sanctification. The setting apart of all these things and all these priests and the building itself, together with the ceremonial application of what God had ordained, was to be used in this dedication and it was acceptable in his sight as worship. And if anything that was sanctified and consecrated to God was used for any other purpose, then that for which it was sanctified, it was considered profane, sacrilegious. Now, the closest we have to the Old Testament view of sanctification is our offering plates. They are set apart for a particular purpose. What is that? For in worship, we place our offerings in the plates, and that is dedicated to God. Now, if somebody took the, the offering plate out into the yard and used it for any other purpose... 
then it would be profane. It would be sacrilegious, whether you use it, well, let's make pretty nice Frisbee, <laughs> and those kind of things. And then that's the idea here. The offering plate, that's the closest we have to the Old Testament view of sanctification, is it's set apart for a particular, for a particular purpose. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are saints. We are called by God and consecrated wholly unto God, set apart only only exclusively for holy service. And that holy service includes everything we do. Everything we do as a parent, everything we do as a grandparent, our jobs, our studies, our hobbies, our recreation, our daily tasks are done as unto the Lord. Remember that? Whatever you do, says Colossians 3.23, what? Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And 1 Corinthians 10, 3 teaches, 31 teaches believers to honor the Lord in all that they do. So, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Anything we don't do for God's glory, anything we don't do as unto him, is profane. It's sacrilegious. But the problem is, we don't always act like saints, do we? We might question whether God's really chosen the right material for the building of his church. You know, look at me, look at you, look at all of us. And we go, we know we're not perfect saints, right? But that is precisely why God gave the life-sustaining and life-giving gifts of evangelists and pastor teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So along with knowing and understanding that we are saints, we, are, we also need to understand that as living stones, we're a work in progress, right? And so we need to understand what it means to be equipped. What does it mean to be equipped? How is it done? In the original Greek, the word translated in equipping is katartismos, katartismos. And, and of the root word, we get our word artisan, artisan. What's an artisan? An artisan is one who works with his hands. An artist or a craftsman is someone who works with his or her hands to build something. And the word first appears in the New Testament in the connection with Jesus calling his disciples. You remember that Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee. He saw two prayers of brothers sitting in, in a boat. There was Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they were sitting in a boat, busily working, doing something with their hands. And what were they doing? They were mending their nets. The word mending is the same word translated in Ephesians chapter 4 as equipping. It's mending. They were equipping their nets. They were mending their nets. They were fixing their nets. They were, were tying those back together that were broken. They were making them strong. They were preparing them for service getting them ready for action. And the use of this particular word suggests that the role of the four support gifts within the church is essentially that of mending the saints, fixing up the saints, preparing them for service, getting them ready for action. The Greek word katartismos is also translated fitting them out or preparing. 
I, I thought of outfitters, you know, in hunting. What do outfitters do? They get all the stuff together, and, and they put it together, and they get the mules or the pack horses or those kind of things, and they do all this work and get everything together, so when they take somebody hunting, that hunter will know what to do and have the equipment and stuff to, to do it. Uh, the Greek authority, J.H. Thayer, says it means, the word means, to make one what he ought to be. To make one what he ought to be, and perhaps the most modern equivalent to that is to shape up. The ultimate aim of evangelists and pastors and teachers is the shaping up of the saints for the work of the ministry. And of course, as we think about this, and we really need, this is an important thing here, because it's very clear that the instrument to be used, the instrument to be used by the four support gifts in equipping the saints is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. All support ministries relate somehow to the Word of God, the Bible. The apostles and the prophets originated the Word of God. It's, it came to them, and God spoke through them, and they wrote it down, and they proclaimed it. They laid the foundation on which the rest of the church rests. The ministry of the apostles and prophets is still available to us today through the written Word of God. This is their foundational ministry. And evangelists and pastor teachers are given by the Holy Spirit to the churches for what? To unfold the word of the apostles and the prophets and make it clear and powerful. So evangelists and pastor teachers are to proclaim and apply the word of God, while the apostles and prophets are considered or concerned with originating the word of God. Evangelists and pastor teachers are concerned with applying the word of God to individual lives as the, as the saints are shaped up and prepared and mended for service. Now, the evangelist deals with the beginning of the Christian life, right? While the pastor-teacher is involved with the development and growth of that life. And so evangelists, to change the analogy again, evangelists are much like obstetricians, helping to bring new Christians into the world. And teaching pastors are more like pediatricians, seeing that these Christians have a healthy spiritual diet, that their diseases receive proper attention, and that they get plenty of spiritual fresh air and exercise. You know, I just love it at Pentecost when 3,000 are saved. Boy, 3,000 new babes in Christ, that church nursery was full. <laughs> and it still took the work of the evangelists and pastor teachers now to start building into their lives and, and working them. And if we go back to the word picture of the church as a building in which each of us is a living stone, it's a little more, I don't know, concrete in a sense, but the evangelist, evangelist is like the guy who works in the quarry, the quarry man. He goes to that stone, that, that granite, or wherever it is, or that marble stone, and he cuts it loose from the quarry stone. You know, and it's kind of amazing how they can take these big chisels and these big you know, sledgehammers, and they put it in a crevice, and they hit that hard, and they keep hitting it hard until it breaks and it cracks, and they can remove that stone from the rock. That's evangelism. And then... They, they shape it to a rough approximation of its final size and shape. And then the pastor teacher then is like the stonemason who shapes the rock. And he fits it into the building in its proper place according to the blueprint of the great architect, Jesus Christ. 
And so both evangelists and pastor teachers are now in place in God's plan for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we only have time to talk about the gift of evangelism today, and we'll save the pastor teacher for next time. Interesting that I'll be talking about that on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. Who, who would have thunk that? <laughs> but evangelists are men and women who proclaim the good news. Who proclaim the good news. Now the word evangelist as a noun and evangelist is only used three times in the New Testament. It's here it's used in, in Ephesians. It's used in Acts chapter 21 verse 8 where Philip one of the first seven deacons is called an evangelist. And you know that story where he, he was taken out to a, a road and the Ethiopian eunuch came by and, and was reading from Isaiah of all things. He gets up on the chariot and explains it to the Ethiopian. He says, nobody's explained this to me. And the only other place is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So we might think, well, three times in Scripture, that's not very much. But these limited mentions describe a vital, extensive, and far-reaching ministry. The word elagilizo literally means to proclaim the good news. Proclaim the good news. And it's used 54 times in the New Testament. And the noun, which means good news, euangelion, is used 76 times. Now think about this. This... To me, this was fascinating. Who was the first evangelist mentioned in Scripture? Actually, it was God himself. Because according to Galatians 3.8, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. I don't know how he did that. <laughs> but God, it says, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The Lord did the work of an evangelist. Even the angel evangelized in announcing the birth of Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. You are of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Jesus himself evangelized in preaching the gospel, as did the apostles in the preaching of the gospel. Now, the work of an evangelist is to preach and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who have not yet believed. Those who have not yet believed. He or she is a proclaimer of salvation by grace, through faith in the Son of God. Now, most of the evangelists that we have in the New Testament were missionaries and church planters. They went where Christ had not been named. And they led people to faith in the Savior. And the biblical evangelist in this sense was somebody who went to a place where Christ wasn't known, where he had not been named, won people to Christ and stayed there till he had built a church. And he stayed there and taught them for a time until he ordained elders in that city who would take over the leadership of that church, and then he moved to a new area. And so evangelism is the ability to go in and establish and build a church and start building into those people's lives, or in a place where the church already exists, an evangelist is one who wins people to Jesus Christ, integrates them into the church, and is part of their maturing process. And when we think of evangelists, who do we think of? Billy Graham. He, he was the evangelist of the previous century. 
What a marvelous ministry. And then if we go back in history, we think of Billy Sunday. We think of Dwight L. Moody. And, and, and we think of others. And we think of Billy Graham. And, and I remember even as a kid watching the Billy Graham Crusades on TV, you know, and uh, especially when they started broadcasting some of them in live, you know, as, as the camera panned the faces of the people that were in the large stadium, you could see the conviction of the Holy Spirit on their faces, couldn't you? You know, and uh, my dad, who loved to laugh, you know, my dad, you needed to go to see a movie with my dad. Because he would cry at every sad scene and he would laugh. He could have been the giggle box that they could have put on. <laughs> you know, you know he, he would laugh and cry very easily. And he would see the conviction on those people's faces and tears were running down his eyes. And I think he was also praying for them. I think there was a time where I once say, Dad, this is a repeat broadcast. <laughs> but he was still praying for those people, which is good because that person is still someplace growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we couldn't wait until Billy Graham gave the invitation and we would watch and see and these people would start coming out of the stands. They start going down to the front. you know. And what happened when they got down to the front? What happened when they got down there? They were greeted by people who had been trained and were prepared to come alongside those people and pray for them, but also to get them involved and integrated into a local church, a local body. You see, the Billy Graham Association began laying the groundwork in a particular city at least a year before the crusade. And sometimes they would contact the pastors in local churches, sometimes two, three years ahead of time. They wouldn't even put a date of a crusade on the calendar until they had talked to, to the, local, the local church leaders. And they met often with those leaders for at least a year in these local churches, and they trained them in both evangelism and in discipling new converts. And the evangelism didn't stop the day that Billy Graham left the city. In fact, in Portland, Oregon, a few years ago, there was great revival in Portland after Billy Graham had left. There was at least a year of extensive praying for, for the city and for preparation and, and all that it takes to, to integrate each one who had received Jesus Christ into that incubator, <laughs> as it were, that, that we call the church. They ensured that every new babe in Christ would be in a healthy church where they would grow and mature, and learn to minister themselves. You know, every local church needs to have evangelists in the church if it's to grow and thrive. It needs to be a high priority of us as Grace Baptist Church that we should be raising up evangelists, some to send out as missionaries, and to have others remain permanently in our fellowship. Every church should be led and fed by a combination of evangelists and teaching shepherds. Men and women gifted to bring in the lost and men gifted for feeding believers and leading them in the word uh, to build them up. And we see the importance of this when Paul commanded Timothy, the pastor of the great church of Ephesus, he'd already said to Timothy, rekindle the gift that is within you. And then he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. You know what that tells me? Evangelism was not Timothy's gift. But like all believers, Timothy 
was commanded to evangelize. So this starts to hit on how to know what your own spiritual gift is. This is the first spiritual gift that we have studied, because we did prophets and uh, apostles last time, but this is the first spiritual gift where you actually might have that gift. This might be your gift, and your first thoughts might be, no, I don't. (laughs) No, I don't. But how do you know if you've never done the work of an evangelist? How would you know? You see, gifted evangelists show the rest of us how it's to be done. Gifted evangelists show the rest of us who don't have the gift how to evangelize and how we can witness and share our faith. You see, every one of us is called and commanded by God to evangelize. Every one of us is called by God to be his, his witnesses. We're also called of God to serve, even though we don't, may not have the gift of service. We're called to God to help and to show mercy. We're called of God to practice hospitality. The whole church is told to practice hospitality. And we're called to minister or commanded to minister in the area of every one of the spiritual gifts listed in the Bible, whether we have that gift or not. And even though you may not have the gift of teaching, you are called and commanded in in Scripture, for example, to teach your children. Every parent's a teacher. Every grandparent's a teacher. We're commanded to teach one another. First, by discipling others. You cannot disciple another believer without teaching him or her God's word. And also in our worship, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, did you know, as we sang the songs this morning, we were teaching one another? Because that's what the Bible says. Let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts to the Lord. Every believer is called to teach, and that's one way in which we teach one another. Every believer is called to evangelize, to tell others about Christ. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Each one of us is called to do the work in every one of the the individual spiritual gifts. And you might even discover that God calls you to serve in a certain way and in a certain ministry for a season that you might not consider your gift or might not even be your gift. You might serve for quite some time in an area you don't think you're gifted in. I believe God does that all the time, especially in a smaller church. And oftentimes, God gets you involved in a ministry or area of service because he wants to open up to you how you are gifted, even though you didn't know it. Maybe you never even considered it. And sometimes it may not even be in the area that he has you serving at that moment, but he's opening it up. You know, when Jan and I were were a young married couple, we did the work of evangelists. In Pocatello, we were involved in the I Found It campaign. Uh, We took the training. We went door to door proclaiming the gospel using the four spiritual laws. And and at that time, I was a youth director at at First Baptist Church. And and Jan and I taught uh, the high school class, and we led the the youth group. Uh, True confessions about one of those, about how evangelism works sometimes. This is true confession Sunday. I'll get it out of the way this Sunday so I don't do it next Sunday. (laughs) 
There was one morning, one particular Sunday morning, we're getting ready to go to church, and I was teaching the high school class, and I was the youth director in those kind of things. And my hair was longer in those days. And I had this hair dryer that it overheat and then just shut off. And I was always in a hurry to get ready for church and those kinds. Some of you have heard this story before. But I'm in the bathroom. My hair dryer quits. I slammed it down on the bathroom floor and stomped it out, plastic flying all over the place. And the love of my life said to me, Honey, you cannot go to church today. <laughs> I said, But I've got to teach the Sunday school class. She said, You cannot go to church today. And so I stayed home, she went to church, she taught the Sunday school class that morning, and she led a girl to Jesus Christ in the Sunday school class. That's the way it works. And when we moved back to Emmett, I was part of a group called Boise Christian Outreach. And that was a group solely for the purpose of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I also actively met with and shared the gospel with many Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. And even though I had some effectiveness over the years, and it was a blessing, and I loved to do it, and I loved to lead people to Christ, like Timothy, I did the work of an evangelist. It wasn't my gift. It's still not my spiritual gift. But I relied on those who were gifted to show me how to do it. And one of those gifted evangelists was my dad, who modeled evangelism for me. To him, telling other people about Jesus Christ and loving them and leading them to the Christ was the most natural thing in the world to do. He was an upholsterer. He was an artisan who worked with his hands, but he was also an artisan, a gifted artisan, in working and fixing up men. Young men and men and young men would stop by his shop just to to talk, just to sit, and some would hang around for hours at a time. And as, as dad worked, he would tell stories, mostly about football and war. And you go, how does that have to do with evangelism? But within minutes of meeting anyone, dad knew where that person was with, with Jesus Christ. And dad could gently bring Christ into the discussion and had just a, a, a beautiful way of sharing what God had done and what God can do and how important it is to know the Savior. Somehow these men knew that they were safe and would not be thought less of because of their lifestyle or the problems that they had. And some of these men were pretty rough-looking characters. Some were alcoholics. Some were drunk at the time. They smelled of alcohol. Some were down and out. Some were ex-cons who just got back to Emmett and went in to see Dad. You know, We gave my mom a hard time because she would lock the back door of the house <laughs> so these guys wouldn't wander into the house. And she was right to do so. And I don't have any idea how many men my dad led to Christ and built into their life, but I do know that it was a lot. A lot. He did the work of a gifted evangelist. And I talk to men all the time that tell me how much they appreciated my dad and what he did for them. When I went to my 40th class reunion, you know, th this is typically how it went. Hi, Billy, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I sure miss your dad. <laughs> I miss your dad. And at the 50th class reunion, I was reminded of, of a friend of mine that I grew up with that 
had sent a letter to my dad, you know, after he got his kind of life back together and things were going well. And, and he reminded me, remember that? I sent a letter to your dad once. I said, yeah, I remember that. I said, my dad cried when he read that. I learned a lot about evangelism from my dad. And another person who modeled evangelism for me, and there were several, was Pastor Curtis Wieselmeyer, who at the time was pastor here at Grace Baptist Church. And a lot of you remember Kurt. One summer in the late 70s, Kurt and I sat down in his home every Saturday morning with two Mormon missionaries. Can you imagine? They keep coming back. Every Saturday morning, these two Mormon missionaries keep coming back until their bishop heard that <laughs> they keep coming back. But every morning... Kurt would open up God's Word. He says, Let, let's study Romans some more. And he'd go back a little bit farther than where we were last time, and then he would bring them up and just take them a little bit farther. And every week, gently, purposefully, getting them in to God's Word. Kurt, among other things, he, he, he taught me how to, how to teach. Uh, maybe I'll talk about this more next week, but... Uh, I was uh, a deacon and youth director at First Baptist Church in town. He was the pastor here at Grace Baptist Church, but uh, he built into my life, and one time he asked me to go up to uh, Warm Lake and be a counselor. You know, I said, do you trust those American Baptists? He said, well, I trust you. <laughs> and uh, so I was up there, and the way he was a camp pastor he formed the model for me being a camp pastor several times. You know, it, it was just wonderful. You know, I enjoyed cold evangelism. Even when I went to seminary the first time, I thought of majoring in apologetics. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. It doesn't mean we apologize for the gospel. It means a speech of defense, that we are always ready to give an apologia, defense for the hope that's within us, how to give an answer. Uh, I, Walter Martin, the Bible Answer Man, was my hero and had opportunity to meet him and, and go to his seminars and things. And I, ensure, I enjoyed sharing the gospel with others, and I still do. My dad, Kurt, and others taught me how to do that. But at the same time, God was opening up exactly what my giftedness was. You know, at the time we were teaching Sunday school at First Baptist Church in Emmett, we were leading the, 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 the youth group in Emmett. We'd done it in Pocatello. And I had never really given much thought that the teaching might be a spiritual gift. Quite frankly, I had resisted the thought. I may talk about next week, I resisted the thought of pastoral ministry as well. You know, with teaching, it seemed like everybody in my family was a school teacher, and they were. My mom was proud in her later years, you know, she would say, I think we got 14, is it 15 teachers in the family now? And we would, she would list them off. She was so proud of all the, the teachers. She'd say, well, Bill, you're a teacher too because you're a pastor. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, so when I was in high school, my mom insisted that I had to be in the Future Teachers Club of America. No, I don't want, no, this, you've got to do this. And so... I joined the Future Teachers Club and found out he got elected vice president, which I wasn't too crazy about. And one February, as vice president of the FTA, I organized a relief day for all the second grade teachers in the district. The future teachers filled all the second grade classrooms and gave the teachers a day off that day. I think it might have been just a morning off, but at least some time off. And I found myself teaching second grade at Brick School, now where Calvary Chapel meets. It was the day before Valentine's Day, 
And the kids were wired beyond any sense of control or reason. And all they wanted to do was put their valentines, get them finished, put them in their boxes, those kind of things. And I went home and told my mom that I was never, ever going to teach anything ever again. And my ministry in college, when I was in Pocatello in college at Idaho State, was doing the work of evangelism, evangelist. Yet, as a youth director and as a teacher, God was opening up to me what my spiritual gift might be. In fact, it's kind of interesting how I became the youth director there, because I'd never given it any thought. My ministry was evangelism at the time. And so the church needed to hire a youth director, and I was put on the search committee to interview candidates for that, that ministry and, and talk to them. And I was on the search committee, and we interviewed several candidates, and we just felt like this is not going where it, where it needs to go. And finally, we interviewed a candidate who, who was a good friend of mine, and he was, he was a gifted musician. He could play the guitar and sing like, like nobody I, I'd ever known before, you know. And so, so we interviewed him. And the whole time we were interviewing him, he was looking down, and he never looked us in the eye. You know, and that was just his, his personality. You know, and we go, yeah, we love the guy, but, you know, that, that's not a youth director. He can't do that. So we were frustrated, and after the interview and, and, and this young man left, the, the chairman looked at me and said, Bill, why don't you take the job? And all I could think of was Valentine's Day in the second grade. <laughs> that, that was the first thing that, that came to my mind. But over the next few years, I was the youth director and youth pastor and in three different churches as God opened up, yeah, this is where I want you to serve. But what if I hadn't taken it a, sh a shot? What if I'd refused to learn how to both evangelize and how to teach? from the gifted teachers and evangelists who showed me how. One of the things that I have learned that in doing the work of evangelism, I am exercising, I've been exercising my gift of teaching all along. Because my style of evangelism has always been, and it's not everybody's particular style to do it one way or another, my style of evangelism was always to get them into the Word of God, to sit down with people, open God's Word, and show them what the Bible says about who God is and how he loves them, and who Jesus is, and, and what he has done, and in some cases, hey, let's compare that to the Book of Mormon. Let's compare that to Joseph Smith. Let's compare that to the Pearl of Great Price and, and the other things. And, but that's not everybody's style of evangelism. And you may wonder, you know, why am I telling you this? Because in the coming weeks, as we look in God's Word and learn about the individual gifts, I'm going to assume rightly, I believe, that whatever gift we're talking about, somebody here has that particular gift. And that today, there are gifted evangelists who are here today, whether you're aware of it or not. And I want to give that someone or those someones as much information as I can give them from God's Word and from the experience of other gifted Christians so you can discover exactly what your gifts are and how to deploy them in the service of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.